This is the third Sunday in Advent, and what we're doing is we're talking about the humanity of Jesus, and we're going to look this morning at the humanity of Jesus in an expression of humanity that maybe we don't give him very much credit for, and that is the sympathy that Jesus has for his saints. The passage this morning is from Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, verses 15 and 16. You can uh, grab a pew Bible in front of you and find this on page 1003. Little theologians, I'd like for you to, if it's okay with mom and dad, draw for me cobblestones. Do you know what those are? It's basically a road that is made from bricks. Uh, Draw for me a cobblestone road. Again, this passage is Hebrews 4, verses 15 through 16. It has to do with the humanity of Jesus, in particular, his sympathy. Would you join me in prayer, and then we'll read this passage. Please pray with me. Father, Moses tells us that your word is our life. We're frantically trying to acquire all kinds of things during this particular season, Uh, Kind of our uh, consumerism is on high alert. But would we not neglect your word? This is our life, says Moses. Would you alert us to that as we spend time in it this morning by your Holy Spirit? Amen. So again, Hebrews 4, verses 15 through 16. Look at it with me, please. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of our Lord. There are some passages that force us to ask rather difficult questions, almost questions that we feel no one really should ask. We're going to ask a few of those questions this morning as we look at this passage, but I want you to entertain this question. Uh, Those of you who profess faith in Jesus, been walking with him for quite a while, Uh, others might say that your faith is a rather mature faith, Uh, can I ask you, how is Jesus going to be able to help someone like you? You, after all, are not like him. He is high and you are low. He is perfect. You're not perfect. Jesus is in the spiritual places and here you are on earth. He is divine. Are you divine? How is it that Jesus will help someone like you? And in order to answer a question like that, which we'll attempt, we need to ask the question, how is Jesus able to help anyone You know that non-believers look at Jesus and they call him a myth, not real. The things that he did didn't actually happen. And as uh, someone who is not a believer is saying something like that, what they're really saying is he's a myth, but I'm real. He's not here, doesn't exist, but here I am. I do exist. And that same person might also say that my life is so real that it's filled with heartache and pain, suffering and difficulty. 
Why would I waste my time believing in a Jesus who is ascended and sitting at the right hand of God, so you Christians say, when what I need is I need someone to help me right here, right now? You see, that's, a, that's an interesting question, isn't it? How will Jesus be able to help someone like you? How will Jesus be able to help anyone? And you see, this passage actually tells us that Jesus does help those who are his children. Right here, right now. What this passage tells us is that Jesus even now sympathizes with our every weakness. Do you know that that's addressed to you, Christian? This passage says that Jesus even now sympathizes with your every weakness. Now we might know that theoretically. We might all nod our heads in affirmation that that's true, but do we, do we, do we really function that way? When we're suffering, do we know that Jesus, he sympathizes with our every weakness? This is the season of Advent, and we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. That was in the past. And we celebrate the uh, future coming of Jesus, his second coming, which is an event in the future. But what about his Advent with me now? Come to me at the cross and with me always, no matter where I am, in the present, in the now. Well, that's what this passage addresses. Let's begin uh, with uh, the problem itself. Is Jesus too far to do me any good? And in order to uh, really give credit to that question, the question does sound a little bit snarky, maybe even cynical, but to give credit to the question, I want us to consider that we're looking at a letter that is uh, written to likely believers in Rome. I think that's the audience of this letter. The scholars don't know who the author is, and that's okay. But it seems to be addressed to believers who are in Rome, maybe even Jews in particular. And these believers are suffering in a couple of different ways. One way is that they're suffering through persecution. This much is actually very clear in the letter, addressing perhaps Christians in Rome, but Christians nonetheless who in Hebrews chapter 13, the very last chapter, are reminded to be aware of those who are in prison, suffering for the gospel. They know people who are in prison right now, suffering. And then in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the writer addresses uh, Christians who are uh, so persecuted that they are not only uh, publicly exposed to reproach, uh, maybe uh, that might be a reference to public trials, that could be the case, but they're uh, publicly being exposed to reproach. But not only that, Hebrews 10 also tells us that they are having their property seized. So we don't know who wrote the letter, and we're not even sure exactly where the letter is addressed, but it is to Christians who, whatever you will say, are suffering from persecution. But they're also suffering in another way. Their suffering is a result of the temptation uh, to sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 is very early in this letter. But already the writer has been uh, quoting Psalm 95, which includes this warning. uh, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so they're suffering from persecution, but they're also suffering from the temptation of sin. And the writer takes them back to that deliverance from the promised land and reminds them that 
Not everyone who was delivered from Egypt saw the promised land. There's a temptation to sin in addition to the persecution. Now, I believe that this makes their situation, well, readily readily understood by us. We feel this in a variety of degrees. Uh, We ought to, if we have a modicum of wisdom, be able to look around and see the rise of post-Christian culture uh, all around us. And persecution for Christians in America is likely to increase. Uh, We are already seeing that, not perhaps uh, as much as we think with individuals, but certainly Christian organizations and institutions are receiving more persecution now than they have before. But what do you think about temptation to sin? Do you think that's a very common problem? Well, you see, that's far easier, isn't it? Temptation may arise at any moment, even right now. Uh, the temptation that the Hebrew people were suffering was the kind of temptation that was a lust for the good life, lust for the life in Egypt, safe jobs, appreciating assets, an easy life, a secure future. Does any of that at all ring a bell? It ought to. That's where we are today. So we are suffering in a way similar to these Roman Christians. Persecution, temptation, and the verse just before the verse we've looked at is a verse that says, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. What that means is uh, let us uh, hold tightly to those things that we believe. Let us hold tightly to uh, God's uh, holy and inerrant word that tells us truly uh, who he is and what we need to know for living the Christian life. Let us hold fast to the life of the church, which is itself a confessing body. Hold fast, hold fast, hold fast. That's the verse just before our passage. Amidst persecution, hold fast. Amidst temptation, uh, hold fast. And we might think that that's what the Christian life is all about, holding on to a confession. And it's important, but I want you to hear how man-centered that is. Is that all the Christian life is about? Holding on to a confession, believing it more and more and more? Or is there something in addition to this? You see... The writer of Hebrews is enticing us to see that there's something in addition to this as well. It's not just holding fast. It's Jesus doing something for you in the now, in the present. Some of you know that uh, I grew up in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Well, part of my life was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And for whatever reason, when I was uh, eight, nine, eight and nine, I was fascinated with hot air balloons. I mean, I, I know part of the reason. Uh, in Albuquerque is a, a, an annual balloon fiesta, uh, just uh, hundreds of balloons all over the place, and my family would, uh, would go. But I remember uh, the Double Eagle II. Do you, does that name sound familiar to any of you? It was a, a, a couple of adventures, adventurers who uh, decided it would be a good idea to ride a balloon across the Atlantic Ocean. And in fact, they did it. 
the double eagle two made it from, I don't know, Maine to France or someplace in New England uh, to France. And I was glued to the TV uh, about these news reports. You see, one of the pilots of that balloon was actually from Albuquerque, New Mexico. He started that balloon uh, festival and there would be uh, these displays in uh, Albuquerque that would show the gondola for the, uh, double, the double eagle two. I was just enraptured by this balloon. This balloon uh, flew all the way to France and I watched it on TV. And I remember this balloon, uh, pictures after the fact, this balloon sitting in some uh, large meadow in France uh, with the balloon entirely deflated and just uh, sprawled out on the ground. And that image came to me looking at this passage because this passage starts very high and it goes very low. This passage tells us that Jesus is in the heavens, verse 14. He passes through the heavens. And in fact, we know that Jesus, he uh, is sitting at the right hand of God. He is high and lifted up. And what I find is that Christians struggle to answer the question, what good is Jesus to me now? And they end up deflating the power of Jesus. Almost as if they're describing that double eagle too, completely deflated. The writer of Hebrews has said that, the, said that Jesus is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than a Levite. He is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, risen, seated with God. But I'm suffering right now. I hurt right now. I need him right now. Is he too far for me to do me any good? Or if he comes close, does he have to be completely deflated? In which case he really does do me no good. That's how this audience feels about Jesus. That's why we have verses 15 and 16 to remind them that Jesus is with you now. Here's two things that they know and that the writer to the, to, uh, to the church in Rome uh, expands upon. They know Jesus is a priest and they also know that Jesus does something else but they have a hard time believing it. Here's something they know, they know he's a priest. Verse 14 is called a great high priest. Verse 15, you see it right there. Uh, he is called a high priest. And the people in Rome, uh, they would know barely more about a priest than you do right now. The scholars really agree that that's the case. They're not scholars of Judaism, the recipients of this letter. A priest would be a rather rare person for them to witness. A pilgrimage to Jerusalem from Rome was outrageously rare. The high priest of Jerusalem meant nothing to them in Rome. And in fact, it would be very unusual if any of these Jews in Rome would have even met a Levite. But they knew that Jesus was a priest. They knew that. And they knew that he was not just any priest. They knew that he was a bona fide priest. And they could tell the difference between a, a priest who cares and one who doesn't care. They would probably know that. There's such a thing as a priest who doesn't really care, but it's just going through the motions. But there's a priest that really does care. And this Jesus, uh, he is the priest who really does care. 
This writer has already said in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. This is, this is a bona fide priest. He's genuine. And they also knew that this priest did a work, that this priest atoned for their sins. It's Jesus. He died on the cross. And uh, Hebrews chapter 2 has already said that he has been a propitiation for the sins of his people. He has uh, made amends, he has atoned, he has uh, paid the necessary price, he has secured the peace that they have with God. So they knew that Jesus was a bona fide priest and they knew that Jesus was an atoning priest. And they also knew that Jesus died once and for all, Hebrews chapter 7. The work that he did, he did once. He doesn't have to do that ever again. They knew that as well. And they also knew this. They knew that Jesus was in the heavens, away from them. They knew all these things, but they're still struggling to understand. Yeah, I get he's a bona fide priest and that he atoned for my sins, but what he did was once and for all and it was in the past, and they know that presently he is in the heavens. What does that mean for me today? One of our little theologians recently asked, why did Jesus go? (laughs) Yeah, why did Jesus go? And I've been thinking about that. This passage actually addresses it. Why did Jesus go? He went, of course, to uh, prepare a place for us. Uh, He went, of course, to uh, reign from on high. Uh, He went, of course, because he satisfied the judgment of God. He's testifying to that satisfaction. All of those things are, are true. I think what the little theologian was asking was not why did Jesus go, but what does Jesus mean for me today, right now? That's what these Roman Christians are wondering. I think that as a church, we... Uh, will believe certain things about Jesus, but we don't talk about the practicality of that belief. We're good with our doctrine, not great with our application. And that haunts us. We sleep with that. I believe all of these things, but I'm in such pain. And the recent issue of uh, the Atlantic Monthly There's an article that I want to encourage you to read. The article is written by Clint Smith, and it's an article about how uh, Germans today commemorate the Jews who died in concentration camps during World War II. It's a fascinating article. Uh, The author visits the Dachau uh, concentration camp. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. I'm going to continue to mispronounce just a little. Uh, But he spends most of his time in the city of Berlin, And he says that scattered throughout Berlin are these uh, stones in the ground. They're these uh, stones that are mixed in with uh, the asphalt or mixed in uh, with cobblestones. And they have a little brass uh, plaque on them. And these stones, uh, everyone in Germany knows, they're called Stolpersteins. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that as well. It's German for a stumbling stone. And it's a concrete brick with a four by four brass plaque on it. In 1996, this German artist by the name of Gunter Demnig uh, actually began installing them, asked no one's permission, he just began to install them in the city of Berlin. You you see, uh, Gunter's father fought for the Nazis in the war. Gunter's now 75, and he is still doing this. 
their handmade concrete blocks, hand engraved brass plaques, and there's 90,000 of them in 30 European cities. I'd never heard of them before. Maybe you've traveled to Germany, you know exactly what these are. This is uh, totally new for me. Uh, they're called Stolpersteins, and they would be in the front of houses or properties where uh, Jews were known to live. And when you look at the plaque, if you can read German, um, you will read uh, the names of the inhabitants of the city, the birth, uh, inhabitants of the house, the birth year of the inhabitants, uh, the year of their deportation, and the year that they were murdered murdered, four by four brass plaque in front of a variety of properties in 30 European cities. And I just think that image is just gorgeous. I don't know how you feel about that. I just think it's wonderful. But there's a problem. I do wonder if Christians, uh, the ones who are addressed in this letter, if Roman Christians were looking at Jesus and, and all that he did, but none of what he did meant anything for them in the present, and that's what they're struggling with. Yes, Jesus did great and amazing things in the past, and he's going to do amazing things in the future, but for now, he is reigning in a way that I just don't know that he's impacting my life. It's almost like what Jesus has done for me in the present is he's made a little plaque for me. And they're pleasant surprises. They uh, tell me things about myself and what Jesus has done for me. They tell me that I'm a Christian person. They tell me about his work on the cross. Of course, the year of the second coming, I don't think would be on that plaque. But Christians think about the work of Jesus in the present almost as if it's just some kind of a memorial. A daily life is swirling around me and it's swirling around these plaques. These little plaques on the ground, they get dirty and I get dirty, but it's just really good to know that Jesus, he remembers me. Is that all Jesus does for us? A priest from the present and the priest that will return in the future, that might be what Jesus has done. So here's what they need to know. They need to not just know that Jesus is the great high priest, what they need to know is that this great high priest has a ministry to them right now. He sympathizes with you. You hear the tone of the writer. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. We don't have a priest like that. Don't you get it? That's what they think. He's good in the past, first advent. He's good in the future, second advent, but I need him now. You do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. No, in fact, he in every respect has been tempted just as you are, but without sin. You hear what the writer is saying to a people who wonder if Jesus has uh, any kind of uh, value for them today. The writer is saying, you see this Jesus, he's fully human. And he's fully human uh, right now. Isn't that virtually impossible to believe? I mean, how does that even work, that he's fully human and yet he resides in the heavenly places? I don't know how that works, but you don't know how that works. But we believe it. He's fully human right now. And the writer says that he has been tempted, and we see that in his life. He was tempted by Satan, but he was tempted his entire life. He was tempted greatly. And not just the 40 days in the desert, he was tempted his entire life. 
and he never experienced sin. The writer tells us that clearly. So he experienced temptation, but without sin. And, and I wonder if we look at Jesus and, and, and we try and understand God's word and we just say, I, I don't understand that he's fully human and how in the world can he experience temptation and not sin? Uh, he seems to be uh, cheating. These things are really hard to believe. But during the season of Advent, even as I think about my last two sermons here, I want us to believe that Jesus is with us now. We're not offering empty doctrine. We're not the the church that has things figured out and we have confessional statements that prove that. We are a church that is hurting individually and corporately. But we refuse to believe that he's not with us. Is he able to sympathize? Yes, he's able. It is remarkable that when the writer addresses these individuals, he says that Jesus has been tempted. From that, we should understand that Jesus is not tempted now. The tempting was in his past. He's no longer tempted. That makes sense, doesn't it? The sympathy that Jesus has That's present tense. Sympathy literally means same feeling. And the writer says Jesus has that same feeling right now in the present. Are you enduring persecution, suffering? He sympathizes. Are you enduring a temptation, dealing uh, with your own sin nature? Jesus sympathizes. He doesn't just know He feels. I don't know how he feels, but he doesn't just know, he feels. And he has the same feeling. When you lose your job, he feels that. When you're riddled with anxiety, he feels that. When you are deeply sad, he feels that. When you are profoundly depressed, he feels that. I don't know how that works, but I know he's with us. Because his word tells us he is full of sympathy in the present. Those wonderful uh, plaques, uh, those, uh, what are they called? Uh, Schloppersteins, whatever. There's actually someone in Germany who doesn't like them. And her name is uh, Charlotte Knobloch. And she's a Holocaust survivor former president of the Central Council of Jews in Germany. And she persuaded that this practice of putting these plaques on the ground would stop. Isn't that amazing? I think they're glorious. She says, no, stop. She says, people walk on them. They're in the ground and they get dirty. That's not a proper memorial. They need to be at eye level on buildings. I never thought of that. It's a good adjustment. Yeah, it's better. Jesus' work is not just the kind of work that's a plaque on the ground that gets dirty and people walk on it. No, Jesus' work is better than that. It's at eye level. You You can see it. It's clearly right in front of you. That is better. The Hebrews begins by telling us that Jesus is better than angels and better than Moses and better than Levites. And Jesus is better than a plaque on the ground and he's better than a plaque that is in a building at eye level. Why? Because Jesus is with you right now. The engraving is happening right now. He knows exactly what you're going through. He is with you. He is writing your story before your very eyes, securing its future. 
but writing it in the present that you might be able to see that he is with you. Nothing that happens to you is outside of his ordained will. He cares for your sanctification far more than you care for your sanctification. And the future that you have is the kind of future that he can secure and you never could. And yet there he is right there with you, writing your life, using all things for your good and his glory. The good things and the bad things. He's feeling, he's engraving, he's securing. And so, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is with us. Welcome to the third Sunday in Advent. Would you pray with me? Our Holy Father, we are grateful for the way in which you care for us. Uh, Jesus, your reign is great and magnificent. You have secured your victory and we will one day see you face to face and we will know that all of that is true beyond doubt. But you're the king and the priest and the prophet who is with us right now. And we thank you in your name. Amen.